Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator of The Last Symptom, and uh, your host. Does it seem to you like it's been a week since the last time you and I talked? Well, it don't seem like it to me either. And I'll tell you what, I don't know where you're at and what the weather's doing for you, but it's downright airy where I'm, I'm at. Freezing temperatures already at night. I ain't checked with the Farmer's Almanac just yet, but I got a feeling, I got a feeling that we're going to have a proper winter this year. And I say bring it on. I'm, I'm ready for it. Just seems like a few years ago that it was real common for it to remain unseasonably warm all the way up until, well, definitely this time, even later in the year, later in November, even mid-December, I remember having real unusually warm temps, and this was just, just a few years ago. So, to have the seasons behaving like I'm used to them behaving from my childhood, uh, I'm all right with that, and I'm uh, I'm happy to happy to be feeling this cold weather here. Hey, uh, before I started recording this show tonight, I had a live stream, like a pre-game, <laughs> pre-show live stream, and uh, got some people to participate in that with me. I kind of showed them the setup and. Uh, we talked about sort of unrelated things and related things, but if that's something you're interested in, you want to get into our thriving Last Symptom online community, which is no longer on Facebook, but there are some perks like that. I, I share things with those folks that uh, I don't share here on this show, and I don't share anywhere else. And it's a nice thriving community of like-minded people. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute, but before we do that, let me tell you the topics of today's show. What we're going to talk about today is the difference between humility and modesty. If I put you on the spot right now to tell us all what the difference is between humility and modesty, would you be able to do that? Well, we're going to talk about it. You know, people interchange those a lot. I mean, they are related things. But um, knowing the distinction between the two can be very beneficial to your life, and it can be very beneficial to uh, your authentic recovery from some emotional disorder, too. In fact, imperative, I'd say. We're going to talk about how to heal after a breakup with somebody who has borderline personality disorder or some other emotional disorder. So you've come out of it a little shaken up. 
how do you how do you heal after a breakup with somebody with that sort of emotional disorder I'm going to share correspondence with you we'll break that down and see what's healthy in it what's not healthy I'm going to talk about not setting yourself up for disillusionment you know in the past I've talked about disillusionment quite a bit it's a killer I mean it really is a killer it can take uh, a person's really their efforts and all the time that they've invested into their emotional health and it can just pull the rug right out from underneath of them so let's talk about disillusionment today and some ways that uh, to think about it to prevent yourself from experiencing disillusionment and finally we'll close out the show with a campfire story and in the campfire story I'm going to tell you all about the culture clash I experienced when I moved to the big city and um, as it relates to waving and saying hi to literally every single person I passed. So we're fixing to get into all these discussions with you here today, but before I do, let me go over some brief announcements, a lot briefer than last week. I, I listened to the show last week and I said, Barnett, you spent too much time on those announcements. You want to bore people to death. But I just want to make sure that you know of the resources that I, I provide. Announcement number one. This show is now available as a video on both Rumble and YouTube. So just search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett on either platform and you can watch the show now as a video. You know, it uh, big inconvenience for me. I got to get dressed, got comb my hair, or at least put a, a hat on, and uh, can't pick my nose while I'm doing the show or anything like that. I mean, it's it's really put a burden on me. So I hope you appreciate seeing the videos. My website, thelastsymptom.com. It's my website full of free resources, thelastsymptom.com. That's, that's home base for everything. Uh, there at thelastsymptom.com you can um, support me with a donation if what I'm doing you find helpful and you'd like to show your gratitude or you'd like to ensure that I'm uh, able to continue doing this work for a while uh, consider giving me a donation for those of you who have taken advantage of that both recently and in the past uh, I can't express to you how hum humbling it is to get a donation out of the blue because you know I do this work I'm involved in doing this all the time and then I get a donation out of the blue and usually from people that I, I haven't even personally talked to and it just reflects their gratitude their appreciation and that is not lost on me and it helps me and my work out tremendously so thank you so much and uh, for all those of you who are considering doing that thank you at thelastsymptom.com I've got several modest paid resources uh, first of all you can schedule for my time to have a one-on-one -on -one phone conversation with me you can schedule for my time to have a one-on-one -on -one zoom video conversation with me so basically if you're watching the video right now this is what you get except that it would just be you and me talking about very personal things finally the last symptom fundamentals course that is available at thelastsymptom.com what is the Last Symptom Fundamentals course? It is an intensive two-week online pre-recorded course. That's a mouthful, ain't it? But t 
to simplify it in your mind while you're trying to imagine what this last symptom fundamentals course is, just imagine any in-depth, pre-recorded college course. That's the nature of it. Uh, it's no more complex than that. A very intensive program that I designed to help people get a, form a solid foundation, a solid foundation of accurate insights in their efforts to either recover from uh, an emotional disorder like borderline personality disorder themselves or for loved ones who would like to understand uh, somebody that has an emotional disorder fundamentally be able to look at them put their behaviors their feelings their thoughts into context uh, it would be useful for you too so consider that again available at thelastsymptom.com. Finally, our thriving The Last Symptom online community that I mentioned earlier where I did the uh, kind of the pre-show, the live stream pre-show before I just just sat down to start recording this this episode of The Last Symptom podcast. It's not on Facebook. It's on Locals. That is spelled L-O-C-A-L-S. So if you'd want, if you'd like to go directly to our online community, the way you do that is you type thelastsymptom.locals.com into your web browser. It'll take you right there. We would love to have you with us. So looking forward to seeing you there, interacting with you, and uh, getting to know you a bit. And your personal circumstances, you know, what, what it is you're personally dealing with. And maybe give you some insights there. Well, here we are. First topic for today. Humility versus modesty what's the difference doesn't matter to know the difference well it does know it does matter to know the difference um, and uh, modesty is was a an insight that I gained during my own recovery over the course of seven years that I realized formed a really fundamental part of moving from emotional disorder or emotional unhealth to emotional health but humility is important too but to, to to know the difference is to understand both things and how they fit into your life or if uh, they're not in your life and how, how you're going to fit them into your life modesty what a beautiful thing it's recognizing one's true limits and being content to work within the confines of those limits now some think that's outdated some think, well, you know, if if I live like that, I'm limiting myself. But notice what I said. I didn't say limit yourself. I said recognize what your true limits are. If you don't, as a person, if you don't recognize that you just do have limits, man, that's a, that's a bad way to live. That's a frustrating bad way to live. Because... Just because you don't recognize that a limit exists, that you are limited in a thing, just because you don't recognize that does not mean that that limit is not there. So think about this, you know, what if I said, I refuse to acknowledge that uh, I need sleep. I refuse to acknowledge that that limit for me as a, a person as a human being exists 
don't like sleep I'm just going to pretend like I do like I am not limited by that how long do you reckon I could go before that caught up to me not very long I think the most I, I think the longest I ever stayed up was three days or three nights three days three nights and it I'm telling you what at the end of that and this was in my early 20s or uh, late teens but at the end of that I mean I like went into a coma um, could not wake up could not be woke up so after three days my body just said that's it whether you want to sleep or not you're gonna and I just went into the deepest sleep of my life of my life so there's an example where, of where I had a limit I tried to ignore it I tried to say okay I don't I don't recognize it but I paid for it so anybody who is immodest does not recognize or respect the real limits that they have to deal with people like that you know if it's you if it's somebody else anybody living like that anybody who is immodest uh, will be forced to pay the price for the failure to recognize those limits immodest people if you think about it immodest people they they live frustrated and I should say unnecessarily frustrated difficult lives why because they say that limit doesn't don't exist but it does exist whether they acknowledge it exists or not they're still bound by it you can't work beyond a real limit right so it's still there they just don't acknowledge it's there so they they're trying everything they can to ignore it but it's still they're still limited by that whether they they acknowledge the limit or not so how is what's humility by contrast well I've got an illustration here to help us all kind of capture the point humility would be if I said to Michael Jordan you know one of the most famous baseball player or basketball players of all time he was a baseball player for a short time but he wasn't all that but humility would be if I said to Michael Jordan hey uh, Michael Jordan let's say I'm walking downtown and I don't know what he's doing in my little town but uh, he's here and let's say we, we pass each other I say oh my gosh you're Michael Jordan and he says why yes I am what can I do for you young man and I say listen mr. Jordan I would love to offer you some suggestions about how to play basketball better would you mind could I, could I offer you some suggestions about how to play basketball better if Michael Jordan stopped <laughs> if if he just stopped that would be humility right there but if he actually said yeah all right I will uh, listen to what you have to say about how basketball could be played better that would be a huge demonstration of humility and why is that the reason is that he's the king of basketball he knows I know nothing about basketball I know I know nothing 
and especially compared to him, it's almost absurd that I would even dare to offer him some some suggestions about how to play basketball. He is the undisputed, or is it indisputed? I don't know. Undisputed or indisputed, but he is the the master between the two of us. He is the master at basketball. So do you see how humility, not modesty, but humility, is Michael Jordan saying, I pretty much know everything there is to know about basketball, but I am willing to stop and hear what this guy has to say. That's that's a great show of humility. I demonstrate humility every time my daughter says, when I say to my daughter, um, this is what I have in mind for the best way to do a thing, but I'd like to know what you think. She says, oh, Daddy, what I think is this and this and this. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. Take some of those things into consideration. That that shows great humility because I'm the master. <laughs> she has six years of life. I have 46 years of life. So the fact that I'm willing to bend, you think of humility as like stooping, right? That's what it is. You're stooping, not stooping. Stoopy, not stupid, but stooping, stooping down to somebody else's level. So Michael Jordan's way up here. I'm way down here when it comes to basketball. Not in everything, but in basketball. So if Michael Jordan is willing to stoop to my level, even though he's way up here when it comes to basketball, that is humility. So what is modesty then? Modesty, by contrast, would be if somebody offered Michael Jordan a chance to pilot a spaceship to Mars. What do you think, Michael Jordan? Tomorrow, uh, I, I can hand you the keys to the spaceship, and we would like you to uh, pilot the spaceship to Mars. Will you do it? Well, modesty would be if Michael Jordan said, Nah, I don't think so. I don't think you need to get somebody who knows what how to pilot a spaceship because I don't know anything about that. That's modesty. Michael, that would be Michael Jordan recognizing that that is beyond his limits. He has no experience with spaceships that I know of, and for him to just take the keys and say, "But you know what? I have no limits. I can do anything I put my mind to," <laughs> and try to fly that spaceship would be very, very immodest, wouldn't it? So modest people get things done and experience more success than immodest people do. When I look at my life and I go, boy, I'm worn out, got too much on my plate this week, and uh, I'm going to burn out. I'm going to burn out if I keep this pace. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to clear my schedule on Friday afternoon. And maybe I'm going to skip the last symptom podcast this week. You see how I'm recognizing beforehand my real limits as a, as a flesh and blood person and saying, how can I comfortably work within those limits? Not try to go beyond the limit, but work comfortably within the limits. So do you see why modest people, they get things done and they experience more success? So that's the difference 
Now, if I asked you, if somebody walks up to you on the street, if Michael Jordan runs up to you on the street and says, hey, tell me what the difference is between humility and modesty, would you be able to explain it now? Humility is stooping, stooping down to somebody else's level. Modesty is recognizing your true limits that just exist and not and, and being content to work within those limits comfortably. You know, it's like I I read uh, there's a an experience of a guy this is over 100 years ago but this is before flight and he was trying to create a a contraption to be able to fly and he had uh, never flown with this contraption. This is the most amazing thing to me. Had never flown with it. But he had invented it and it was like a set of wings, like an exoskeleton on his back. And he went to the Eiffel Tower in France. This is a true story. Went up to the top. He had a, a license to go to the top as kind of like an exhibition thing. Uh, I don't believe he had a license to jump. But he was so immodest that even though he had never tested this thing successfully he was just so sure it will fly it will went up to the top of the Eiffel Tower cameras rolling and everything newspapers there jumped off the Eiffel Tower and just went wily coyote man straight down and died not a very modest guy did not recognize his real limits as a person and ensure that the contraption would work before handing his life over to it. Very tragic story. But if you Google that, it wouldn't be too long before you found that. Some details on that story. Moving on. How to heal after a breakup with somebody with borderline personality disorder or with some other uh, emotional disorder. So this was a question I got at some point. And the person said, uh, how does someone begin to heal? Now take note of this. How does somebody begin to heal after the invalidation and emotional abuse from being in a relationship with a person suffering from borderline personality disorder? That question really popped out to me because of the invalidation part. There's only one group of people on the planet who need their feelings validated. You know who that is? Nope, not Asians. Nope, not Mexicans. Not whites, not blacks, not American Indian. It's children. Children are the only group of people on the face of the earth who need their feelings validated. Healthy adults, do you know who validates their feelings? They do. They validate their own feelings. That's what that's what being an, an independent adult free agent is. It's self-sufficiency like that. So th- let me ask the question again. The person says, how does someone begin to heal after the invalidation 
and emotional abuse from being in a relationship with a person suffering from an emotional disorder? Here's the answer. You stop looking outward at the other person. Oh, it's not the answer you were hoping for, is it? Well, that's the answer. You stop looking outward at the other person. Because anybody asking a question like, this person, why is my partner not validating my feelings? Got their own problems, don't they? And anybody who would be with, uh, in with an unhealthy person to begin with, that person themselves, that person himself or herself is also unhealthy. So you're really wasting your time looking outward, looking out. That's what unhealthy people do. It's a telltale sign of emotional unhealth. And all unhealthy people do it. Here's how they spend their time. Looking out, looking out. Looking out, looking out, looking out what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're doing. Emotionally healthy people don't do that. Emotionally healthy people might catch themselves starting to do that from time to time, but they quickly catch themselves and they turn that attention back inward. Primary difference between emotionally healthy people and emotionally unhealthy people. Emotionally unhealthy people always looking outward. Emotionally healthy people always looking inward. That's why uh, couples therapy doesn't work. Couples therapy is a is a it's a swindle. It's a sham. And the couples therapy therapists are never going to tell you that because they're making millions off of you. But the very nature of a couples therapy session is he does this, he does this, he does this. And the husband, she does this, she does this, she does this. It's all outward, outward. That's why it doesn't work. It's why it will never work. The only time it, and, it, and it's not a credit to uh, couples therapy, but the, any, any, the only reason anybody would leave couples therapy and then go on to honestly, in a, in a genuine, authentic way, get healthy, is if at some point they go, okay, enough of this you stuff. It's me. I'm going to just go work on myself individually. I know we're in a relationship, but I'm just going to pretend like you're not there, and I'm just going to work on myself 100%. And the other person does the same. But do you see how it's couples therapy didn't get them there? Couples therapy won't get you there. It's an individual decision to start doing that, to start looking inward. So, a person asking a question like, how do I how do I start to heal from this relationship I just come out of with so emotionally abusive and unhealthy? Stop talking about him. Stop talking about her. Because it's we need to be talking about you. What made you think it was a great idea to be in that relationship in the first place. Why did you stay? A healthy person, this subject comes up so much, but a healthy person, let me let me illustrate it this way. All right, you are as clean as can be. You don't even drink alcohol. You don't take drugs. You're just as clean as can be. And then one day you visit Las Vegas. All right, and you're walking the strip in Las Vegas, and you come across a bunch of heroin addicts, a bunch of homeless heroin addicts. How comfortable would you feel in that situation? How long would it take you in that situation for you to go, 
this is not for me. I, I don't fit here. So I, I, I don't wish ill on any of these people, and some of them are very likable, but I'm just not going to spend a lot of time here with, with these folks. Have, have some conversation, jokes, and part ways, right? If you see each other later, you're, you're cordial. But uh, it's not like you're going to invite them over for turkey dinner. Why is that? It's incompatible. Their way of life is incompatible with your way of life. Now, that is exactly the type of thing that happens when an emotionally healthy person begins dating, uh, meets somebody who is emotionally unhealthy. Who has an, especially if they have an emotional disorder, but it doesn't have to be that far. It can just be an emotional, it could just be, they could just be emotionally unhealthy. So imagine that you're a perfectly healthy person. Your life is, you're content, you're experiencing authentic contentment. Life is good for you. I mean, maybe you've got some struggles here and there, but emotionally speaking, you're doing very well. You're very content with life, content with yourself. And now you go on a date with somebody who is not emotionally healthy. They're not content with themselves. They hate themselves, that, which is at the root of, of all emotional disorders, by the way. They don't um, hold your feelings in any value. And they don't ascribe any uh, inherent value to your feelings or to you. It's all about what you're wearing, how you look, how much you weigh that day. You know, that's how weight works, by the way, I hope. It goes up and it goes down. That's how, that's that's real life. It's not a movie. In, in real life, people's weight is always fluctuating. So, how long, you know, the idea that a woman can meet a guy and go, oh, he just fooled me. You know, he hid all these things. Okay, so he wasn't busting glasses and stuff. But he can't hide his attitude about things, right? You can't hide your real attitude about things. You can't. So, an emotionally healthy person, 99% of the time, is before that first supper is has ended, will know this is not this doesn't fit this is not harmonious with me and, and the way that I live and my attitudes it's just not harmonious now there are some physical things I mean if you're just a super horn dog you might get into a sexual relationship with the person that's not what I'm talking about you can you can have a sexual relationship with somebody and not be in a committed uh, type of thing what I'm talking about is making them, bringing them into your life, making them an aspect of your life, you know, a committed relationship. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. So when I talk to people and they're like, oh, he, he fooled me. No, he didn't fool you. You just don't know what you're seeing. You don't know how to identify what you're looking at because many of those attitudes and stuff are just common for you they're normal for you those also are the attitudes and norms of your life many of them maybe your parents didn't 
um, throw plates and everything and uh, punch the walls and kick the dog and stuff. But the underlying attitudes uh, were the same nonetheless. So the way you heal is that you stop with these delusions and finger pointing and you get honest, you get real with yourself. You ask yourself things like this, whatever made me believe that other people are responsible for validating my feelings? That come to an end the day I turned into an adult. The day I turned into an adult free agent, only one person become responsible for validating my feelings and it wasn't anybody outside of me it was me I'm responsible for that and I'm the only one that really needs to do that nobody else is responsible for validating your feelings the adults around you even if they're your husbands or your girlfriends or your whatever they're only responsible for validating their own feelings not your feelings if your feelings aren't getting validated it's because you perceive yourself like a little baby child dependent on somebody else to do grown up things for you like tell you that what you feel is okay it's like (laughs) I'll tell you what this uh, people in this situation grown ups in this situation adults who complain about other people not validating their feelings it reminds me of a guy or a girl just standing around waiting for a grown-up an adult human being standing around waiting for somebody to come and tie his or her shoes for him or her or her it's pathetic isn't it can you imagine a perfectly capable adult human being Standing out on the street corner, looking around, trying to trying to flag people down so that they will come and tie his or her shoes for him or her. Really pathetic. Healthy adults validate their own feelings for themselves. They don't need or wait on or rely on other people to do it for them. So that's number one. That's the number one thing you should be asking yourself. Why did why did I think, why did I ever think that it was somebody else's responsibility to validate my feelings in the first place? Number two, you honestly try to determine what it is about being in a committed relationship with an unhealthy person who probably has an emotional disorder or even continuing in a relationship with a person like that. What on earth is that is attractive about that or, or rational to you? Why did you not pick up or or take seriously the warning signs before? Why did you shrug that off and say, oh, it'll work itself out because of love, right? Love. What defect in your thinking has you looking at such a situation going, yeah, yeah, it's totally disordered, unhealthy way of life, looks appealing to me. That's I want to make that guy's life my life or I want to make that girl's life my life guys it doesn't matter how hot she is a healthy person still won't do that like I said 
even a healthy guy might get into a sexual relationship with a hot girl like that but he's not uh, if he's healthy he won't bring her into his life and make her a part of his committed life like that won't do it it's not worth it it's like it's like it's not even playing it's not even like playing russian roulette uh, playing Russian roulette, you actually you actually have a chance of not getting shot. Not so when you get into a relationship with somebody who is unhealthy. Whatever their unhealth is, you're bringing that into your life, and the very act of that is unhealthy. Only unhealthy people do it. So it's absurd, and like I said. Don't want to hear the excuse that, oh, well, I didn't realize they were emotionally unhealthy until I was already in a relationship with them because the only way that that can even possibly happen is if you were emotionally unhealthy too. And so, And the reason why that relationship happened in the first place is because nothing looked out of place to you when you were considering the relationship or didn't seem so serious or... You know, it's like, uh, just think about the, the heroin addicts down here on the strip in Las Vegas. You wouldn't do it. It's it's not compatible. And that is what happens when healthy people get around unhealthy people. The two are not compatible. doesn't mean that the healthy people look down on the unhealthy people or despise them or hate them or wish ill on them or anything like that or think that they're better than them no that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about simple compatibility or or lack of compatibility so you got to start getting serious and honest with yourself about how and why you are emotionally unhealthy what what are your underlying issues healthy relationships don't result from two half people coming together and completing each other sickest lie you've ever been led to believe healthy relationships result from two complete two completely whole people each generating their own validation from within themselves choosing to come together so you getting healthy is the road to your healing uh what is not the road to your healing is your ex-partner's healing or or understanding exactly all that he has to do or that all that he did wrong that's not the road to your healing that's the road to his healing he needs to figure those things out the road to your healing is figuring out what's wrong with you just looking at time here all right correspondence person says to me uh, asked me sent me an email asked me a bunch of questions I said what do you know about the last symptom what do you know about my work nothing nothing I just discovered you yesterday I said well you're going to need time to go through you know I've already got all these resources out there that you need to be taking advantage of before you start asking questions like this I highly encourage you to take full advantage of these resources and then once you get a feel of who I am, what I'm all about, then we can talk. She says, all right, I'll go through your resources. Though, I have to be honest, I have absolutely zero faith 
I will ever come out of my borderline personality disorder. I don't think I even know who I am without my borderline personality disorder. You must be one of those very few chosen by God to recover from it. I hope I will someday too. That was her message. Now, I'm going to talk about God here just a little bit because she brought it up. And I believe in God. And I know that some of you do too. And I also recognize that not all of you do. So I'd appreciate it if you just uh, bear with me here a second while I address those who do believe in God. I'm not discrediting those who don't. I appreciate this person's message, but what, what is fundamentally wrong with the message? She says, I'll go through your resources, though I have to be honest, I have absolutely zero faith I'll ever come out of my borderline personality disorder. So, number one, her attitude going in. Her attitude going in. Why is she even talking to me if she has zero confidence that she could she can live without borderline personality disorder? Self-fulfilling prophecy right there. Attitude going in. Zero faith. Then what can I do for her? What can I do for a person who absolutely has zero confidence whatsoever that they can recover from borderline personality disorder in an authentic way? What can I do for a person like that? This reminds me, and this is kind of like the person standing on the street corner, looking around, trying to wave people down. Hey, an adult human being. Hey, uh, I need somebody to tie my shoes. Pathetic, right? So this type of attitude, literally, the image that comes to my mind is a person standing next to groceries. So they've gone to the grocery store. They're home now. And they got all these groceries there in the back of their car. And they're just standing there. Oh, I, I need these groceries in my house, but what can I do? Why, how are my groceries ever going to get into my house? What can I do? Golly, I really wish these, these groceries were in my house right now. <sighs> Looking around, trying to wave people down. I've got groceries. They're in the back of my car. I need them in my house. It's very helpless and pathetic. So that's the person's attitude who's reached out to me. They're, a pers- they're just like a person who has a trunk full of groceries standing there wanting me to carry the groceries in for them. You know, that's the thing. They, they find out that I actually did have borderline personality. I don't know how many of you are watching this me for the very first time, but I had borderline personality disorder for seven years or uh, for the first 35 years of my life. After a crisis, I spent seven years uh, authentically recovering from it. So imagine if I had just, oh gosh, I sure would like to not have borderline personality disorder. Guess I'll do an internet search and I click, click, I'll come across this guy. He's recovered from borderline personality disorder for real. He had it all his life and now he ha- he doesn't have it for real. Well, that's pretty impressive. Gosh, I wish he'd do something for me. I wish he'd fix my borderline personality disorder trying to wave me down she finally calls me and 
she hasn't even, you know, I got all those free resources there available for her. All this information about how I did it, how you can get started, doesn't even take advantage of it. Doesn't even spend like a couple weeks listening to this podcast. But standing there like, gosh, I guess I'll just call him. Maybe he'll do it for me. Got all these groceries here, need them in the house. Maybe he'll take them in the house for me. I Because... Not, there's no other solution coming to me about how these groceries are going to get from here to inside my house. Number two, what really stood out to me. By the way, I'm not insulting this person. I'm just I'm pointing out a real attitude that I see time and time and time and time and time again. You need to start packing the groceries into the house. I'll help you. Right. If you flag me down, I got all these groceries. I'm trying to get them into the house. Oh, you do have a lot of groceries. Yeah, I've got you know three fourths of them in there already. But boy, if you could help me, that'd be great. I'd say sure. Hand me a bag. We'll we'll get them in there. But if you're just standing there, not even willing to start picking up one grocery bag and start getting it into your house, what 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 do you want me to do for you? That's number one. So the attitude going in, it's kind of fake helplessness. Number two, God doesn't do things for us that we can do for ourselves, but just won't. That's number two. She says, you must be one of those very few chosen by God to recover from borderline personality disorder. Totally discredits the fact that I spent seven years taking my own damn groceries into the house. You know, figuratively. I did that. I didn't wait around for anybody, and I didn't say this is impossible, and I didn't believe anybody when they said uh, it's incurable or anything like that. I said, I'm going to I'm gonna fix this. I'm going to figure out what the root causes of this are, and I'm going to fix it. And I don't care how long it takes me, I'm going to do it. That's the kind of attitude that I that worked for me that you you need to have too. But you know, remember that I'm a God-fearing person. Why didn't I just say, "Well, God'll fix it for me." Now that I know what this is, if I pray a lot, God'll fix it for me. Does God answer prayers? that go like this dear God here I am just back from the piggly wiggly and I have no idea how I'm going to get these groceries in my house God please send somebody to help me get these groceries into my house I don't know what to do standing there but you know Hatch back hatch open on the car, groceries, yeah, eggs spoiling, milk getting warm. What do I do, God? Please help me. You know what God's thinking? He's thinking, why, why doesn't she just pick up the grocery bag and start taking them inside the house? God doesn't do things for us that we can do for ourselves, but just won't. He doesn't answer those types of prayers. Because they're offensive. They're ridiculous. 
think about um, anybody who, who would make a petition of you. Hey, can you go get me a, a, a tissue and clean this booger off my nose? Because it's really bothering me. Can you clean that off for me? I mean, unless you're paralyzed from the neck down, that's just so absurd. You'd say, you wouldn't even answer the person. You'd just walk away, wouldn't you? I mean, think about it. You wouldn't even answer the person. That's how ridiculous it is. You just walk away. So think about you praying to God. God, please cure my borderline personality disorder. Please. He's thinking, yeah. There's all this stuff that you could be doing for yourself right now. You're just not because it's work and you don't want to do the work. He's not going to answer a prayer like that. So you're going to be waiting unhappy for a long, long time if you're waiting for God to to answer a prayer like that and forever, in fact, if you're waiting for God to answer a prayer like that. And it's like waiting for God to tie your shoes. <laughs> you're just going to be waiting for a long time. To recover from your emotional disorder God is waiting for you to animate yourself and to do this for yourself and the judgments he makes on you are based on whether you ever choose to put in this effort or not now notice I'm not telling you that his judgments are based on whether you're ever totally successful at it or not that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying his judgment is based on whether you ever put in a genuine effort or not. Not on whether you're totally successful or not. The positive thing is that if you are genuine and you continue putting in the effort and you continue working hard with accurate information, which is what my work provides you, the last symptom, you will be successful. So it's not like, well... We'll put in all this work for nothing. No, you will be successful if you have accurate information and you're and you're genuine and you're putting in the work. All right, disillusionment. Often when I'm talking about the professional community as a group, I talk about the the real injustice that they commit by creating disillusionment in people. So when I talk about disillusionment, that's usually the context. I'm talking about the professional community, their misinformation, their complete failure to provide answers or insights. And how a person puts in so much work, you know, 5, 10, 15, you know, I've talked to people who've been in therapy for 40 and 50 years. And eventually, they're at the rope, they're at the end, right? They're just like, I've put in all, I've invested all of this time and energy and nothing. I got nothing to show for it. That feeling of I've put in all this effort and I've got nothing to show for it is disillusionment. It's a killer because it can mean the, uh, it can mean the, the end of any of people's caring. But even though I often talk about disillusionment in that context, I want you to consider that it's not always the fault of the person providing the information. Disillusionment ain't always the fault 
of the person providing information. Sometimes, and often I would say, it's a result of one's own unrealistic expectations. So, for example, if a person comes to me full of euphoria and excitement believing that I can fix them, let me, let me reiterate that. They come to me full of euphoria and excitement believing what? Believing that I can fix them. Well, they're setting themselves up for disillusionment. Why is that? The reason is because nobody can fix you. Nobody can fix you except for you. Not even I can fix you. It doesn't matter if you paid me a million dollars, which I would not complain about, by the way, and I would give it my darndest effort. But even then, I wouldn't be able to fix you. If you were to get fixed, it would be because you fixed yourself. The interesting thing is that a person who becomes disillusioned because of their own unrealistic expectations often then expands that disillusionment to equate things that are distinct and separate but uh, seemingly guilty by association. So here's some examples. Back during the summer, I had plans to take a short trip to uh, Toledo to spend some time with my late friend Jordan's mom do some fine dining and uh, see a Mud Hens baseball game. So beforehand, I spent a lot of time picking out a, a, a really good hotel. I wanted to live it up a little bit. And I settled on one. You know, I looked these pictures over and over again. Hotel had a beautiful pool, nice gym, seemed to be ideally situated. I was really looking forward to getting there after a lot of driving. When I checked in, I thought, this absolutely cannot be the place. It, it looked like something out of the Adams family. It was inside this industrial complex in a really kind of scary part of town. Cracks and litter throughout the parking lot. The inside looked like it had never been renovated. No, I mean, not ever. And... Uh, it looked like it was built sometime in the 60s or 70s. You remember me talking, I talked about something similar a couple weeks ago when I talked to you about the news organizations spending thousands, even millions of dollars on these ad campaigns to try to convince you just how honest and trustworthy they are when they could literally take those millions and thousands of dollars and just restructure so that they are honest and trustworthy. They don't do that. They don't do that. They would rather let their dilapidated model continue as is and then just spend millions or thousands of dollars um, on ad campaigns to convince you that their model is not uh, rotten from the inside out. Burns my bacon. Well... That's what this uh, hotel was like. They must have spent thousands of dollars to make the hotel look good, 
rather than just taking those same thousands of dollars and actually making the hotel good what really put a hair in my biscuit was the fact that the pool was not only a thousand times smaller in real life than it looked like in the pictures but it was closed for repairs can you believe that it was the whole reason I well it wasn't the whole reason but it was a big reason why I, I made my reservations there so wouldn't it have been nice for them to have mentioned that somewhere on their website you know while I was checking them out and trying to decide whether I wanted to make reservations there or not in this hotel this is a true story in this hotel first night uh, I'll, I get in bed and I hear uh, 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 just the loudest sex noises coming from through the wall of the, the room next to me I didn't you know I didn't I was a little jealous but I didn't uh, think any I didn't think badly of the people uh, uh, I mean it was she was screaming oh oh my god and he's oh, oh, he man he's working overtime didn't like I said I didn't think anything bad about that I was kind of happy for him I thought well good good for them next night same thing and it started at like one o'clock in the afternoon it started at like one o'clock in the afternoon I went to a mud hens game baseball game so I was going for like five hours come back it's still going on about uh, 8 9 10 o'clock at night finally I just I can't I can't stand this I go downstairs I talk to the front desk and I said there's there's a couple next door they have been at it I'm not kidding you for like 36 hours guy says uh, what room are you in I told him he knew exactly who I was talking about by the way so my working theory on this is that it was a sex worker they were filming something in that room so this was not just a boyfriend and a girlfriend type of thing this was a something a little shadier than that they knew exactly those people and apparently this is just something like every weekend they, they come and they film in that hotel room did not reimburse me for anything uh, did not offer me any perks or like any uh, did not make up for any of the trouble that they put me through I had to move to a different room they wouldn't move them and they wouldn't go up there and tell them to be quiet they moved me up to a different floor and uh, and that's a true story that's how bad that was just absolutely the worst hotel experience of my life uh, that's just a that's just a peek at how bad it was so terrible terrible experience and you know the thing is, is that that hotel cost over a hundred dollars I think it was hundred and eighty dollars or something like that I mean they really sold it like this was like a, a really nice hotel I've stayed in lots of thirty and forty dollar hotels that were immaculate and beautiful and just perfect perfect experience thirty and forty dollars this was a hundred and eighty dollars I think and was just the worst experience of my life as far as hotels go <laughs> it wasn't the worst experience of my life but as far as hotels go as a side story I thought I'd tell you about uh, 
Diana and me, you know, Diana, Mike's wife, one year, she says, what are we going to do for our honeymoon? I said, not honeymoon, our, our wedding anniversary. I said, I got an idea. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go out for like five days and we're just going to follow the compass. We're just going to follow a compass. We're going to follow it northwest. She says, you don't know where we're going? I said, nope, that's the whole idea. We're going we're gonna to discover it all. We're going to discover it all as we go. You have no idea where we're going to go. I said, no, no idea. We'll just discover it as we go. So we did that. We drove for like five days. And what, I had a compass inside my pickup truck. And what we did is we just followed that compass northwest. Just northwest. So you know, we'd have to turn this way and we'd have to turn that way. But we'd try to bring the compass back northwest. And uh, man, that was just the best experience. We got up into the mountains and it was just awesome. Went through all these little tiny towns that we would have never ever visited and it was a really cool experience but the reason I thought about it while I was working on this is that one night uh, we had been driving all day long following the compass north northwest and we were going through this really tiny mountain town must have been like a dot on the map and we come across this motel and it was just somebody's house with like a kind of a, a small motel along the side of the house and they had a sign and we stopped there and went in a lady come out in her robe so she lived there and that was her house didn't take credit cards or anything but she said that the to stay the night was only 20 bucks 20 bucks so we pulled out a 20 dollar bill and uh, Diana and I stayed there in that motel that night and it was immaculately clean it was a wonderful experience clean and just well designed and everything and for 20 bucks stayed there that night got a good night's sleep the next morning we got up got to explore this mountain town a little bit it was one of the best experiences ever so be adventurous never know what will come up like that sometimes a $20 motel room can outdo a $180 hotel uh, any day of the week. So, I use this story about the hotel to talk about disillusionment. And it's not a perfect comparison because the expectations I was working with were not entirely unreasonable, you know, given the pictures and the, the research I did ahead of time. But you can still see how my level of dis, disillusionment or disappointment was in direct proportion to my expectations getting there, right? What expectations did I have when I got there? So if this is true when our expectations are reasonable, imagine when our expectations are not reasonable. How, you know, we ourselves create our own disillusionment in these cases. Furthermore, imagine that after this experience, what if I went, after this experience, I begin to equate the experience with this one hotel, with all hotels and all hotel workers. Does this one hotel and the people working there accurately reflect or represent 
all hotels and hotel workers? Clearly not. Makes me think again about religion. You know, my, my buddy Jordan, my late buddy Jordan, I should say, had a particularly bad life experience. And this completely knocked the wind out of him. It caused him to really become disillusioned about God. He was working with the notion at that time that if he believed a certain way and if he lived a certain way that his life would always be rewarded and uh, he would never suffer any hardships or betrayals or pain life would only be good all the time was that ever realistic of him to to work on that premise that was never realistic you know, in this world, it doesn't matter who you are or whether you believe in God or not or if you live according to a certain standard or code or not. It don't matter. It don't matter. In this world, the reality is that bad things can happen to any of us at any time. In fact, it's not just probable it's unavoidable that's the nature of real life in this world in fact if you ever saw the movie uh, no country for old men basically that's the whole message of the entire movie it doesn't matter how bad you are doesn't matter how good you are we're all in the same boat as far as just the way things happen so furthermore, let's say that you have a bad experience with a religious person or even with many religious people of the same religion. You see, uh, people tend to equate that experience with God and with the Bible or whatever. But how is it God's fault? There, there's no distinction being made there. God and those who profess to worship Him are not one and the same thing, right? The, the unhealthy person or a person in pain is equating something between two things that seem related but are not perfectly synonymous, right? You would like to think that people who are claimed to be religious uh, would reflect good on God, but they don't not all the time and you know you got to take into consideration that people are just people too there's a lot of factors going on to the fact that they're just people right they they're limited by the fact that they're people so there's always there's always going to be a disconnect there i mean you're always going to get it's, it's never going to be a perfect reflection of one thing or the other so anyway, talking about this disillusionment stuff, if you come to me with the expectation that I'm able to fix you, and then I don't, have I let you down? No, you've let yourself down with your impossible expectations. Remember, if you're going to get better, it's going to be because you, you got yourself better. I can offer some accurate information, but I can't do the work for you, and I can't do the, the, the necessary inner things that, that it requires goes for professionals too by the way 
you know you can't expect for them to fix you it's you don't have a broken leg it's not like a broken leg only you are responsible for and can fix yourself but it's up to you to take advantage of the resources that for example the last symptom offers remember if you aren't doing your part you ain't doing it for the right reasons and doing it in the right ways and for a long enough period of time nothing I share with you is going to matter nothing anybody shares with you is going to matter I'm not a magician nobody else is a magician we're just normal people disillusionment can also come from viewing me for example as something greater than just a normal person you know I open the show every week with Brian Barnett's just a regular guy sooner or later you're going to see flaws sometimes great flaws and so you might read something about me you might hear somebody complain about me and and how sad it is that because of one's own unrealistic expectations that I be some sort of super individual that uh, then a person could become disillusioned by the fact that I am just a normal person and I've been telling it for four years right but a person could become disillusioned that way because of their unrealistic expectations their own uh, unrealistic expectations so when a person becomes disillusioned then with me because they go oh he picks his nose well healthy people don't pick their noses do they we do but you see that then they would use that to, to become disillusioned and then they go well because he he picks his nose I, I ain't going to have <clears throat> anything to do with all these accurate insights and information that he offers it's the disillusionment is dangerous so make sure that uh, nobody else is creating disillusionment for you so for example like the professional community just go into it knowing them as a community going to waste a lot of your time you're going to have to work real hard to find the right person that way you protect yourself from disillusionment also keep telling yourself I got to do this work I got to do it if it's going to happen it's going to be because of me I need I need some accurate information and some help that way, but um, I recognize that being healthy is not the same thing as being perfect. Barnett's still dealing with the same human limitations that we all are. He still makes mistakes. He still says things sometimes that he wishes he could take back, especially if he's tired, hungry, or not feeling good. Right? There's a difference between emotional unhealth or emotional disorder and what is just the normal human condition. And besides that, what bearing does the fact that I'm not perfect have on the quality of information that I provide? None whatsoever. Has no bearing on whether the the information I provide you is accurate or not. The fact that I make mistakes. Some mistake I make or choice I make for my own life that you totally dislike, so that's not even a mistake right I I might just make choices that you don't like it's not a mistake but it's still my life I get to make those choices right that in itself not proof that uh, I haven't recovered from my emotional disorder no reason for you to get disillusioned over something like that 
So some choice I make for my own life that you don't like has no bearing whatsoever on whether the information that I share is accurate or valuable or not. All right, campfire stories. I told you I'd tell you about how I used to wave at everybody in Philadelphia. Now, this is just part of my culture. You know, I grew up Appalachia, and that's what we do. Um, I grew up on an old country road, and driving into town especially, anybody coming the other way in a vehicle, in any vehicle, when you're driving, you wave at them. People think I make that up. I'm not making that up. And everybody from the South probably knows I'm telling exactly the truth. Unless you're from this uh, a, a huge city, you know, Atlanta or something like that. I don't, I don't imagine people do that in Atlanta. Uh, but in, in the small towns we do, Appalachia, southern towns, also uh, do that. Where it's considered rude to pass somebody driving the other way make eye contact with them and not acknowledge them so that's just the way it was the whole time I was growing up you'd be driving along somebody would be coming the other way you'd acknowledge them wave at everybody walking in town you pass, you, you know you're you're walking past somebody always hi or hello or howdy howdy how's it going going good those little types of interactions that's so commonplace it's still it's still commonplace by the way hasn't changed since the time that I was younger now it's the same way um, always waving at people always saying hi I remember I was dating my ex-wife Diana and she says do you know that guy that I, that I waved at in the car You're driving wave at the guy do you know him I know. Why'd you wave at him? Because it's the polite thing to do. Why is it the polite thing to do? Because because it's just the way we do things. It's just the culture. So anyway, I moved to Philadelphia for my ex-wife Diana. And of course... I carried that part of my culture into the into the major city. So everybody I'd see, I mean, we'd be driving down the road in Philadelphia, and you know, like these gang bangers coming by the other way. I'm like, "Hello, fellows," and they just give me a look like, I'm "Gonna shoot that guy." Um, same thing. Any any time we were walking anywhere around Philadelphia, on the sidewalk, and we'd pass somebody, "Howdy, howdy, hello, how's it going?" And they'd look at me, and nobody would reply to me. But I couldn't stop myself because that's it's that ingrained into me. For years, for years, my my wife would try to tell me, "Don't do that. Don't wave at people. Don't wave at every single person we pass on the road. It's weird." And I'd say, "I I can't stop myself. It. I feel rude not doing it. I can't just not do it." Well, I was there for probably a, a decade before I, I began to finally understand it. I finally began to understand why it works where I'm from, but it don't work where, where she's from. And the reason is this. 
in small town Appalachia, you feel safe. You feel friendly with everybody. To do that, to acknowledge people in the car, wave at them as you're driving by them, to say howdy as you're pass, you know, as you're walking by them or whatever. Um, the context is so safe that it makes sense. But in a city, what happens is you've got lots more people, and you got lots more different types of people. You've got mentally healthy people, and you've got lots of mentally not so healthy people. You've got good people, and you've got lots of not-so-good people. You've got people who, what you see is what you're getting. And then you've got people who have a dark underside. Now, that's true in small towns, too, but you you can think about the odds of that, or the, the equations of that, the percentages of that, all right? In a very small town, if you've got people like that, it might be one or two. And they're not walking around downtown amongst everybody. No, they're, they're out there hidden in a cabin somewhere out in the woods. In the city, these people are all around you. The, the percentage is much greater because there's just more people. You know, I don't know how many people are in Philly, but there's millions. So suddenly the percentage of bad people are much greater. Percentage of bad people and weirdos, much greater. People with uh, uh, objectives and stuff that really you you don't know and you probably don't want to know. Much greater. So in the city, you got to be a little bit more careful. What happens when you go into a big city and you start going howdy, howdy, hello, waving at everybody like that? Um, the way it comes across. The reaction to that from city folk, from you know, culturally, is your guard goes up. If somebody says hi to you and you don't know them, your guard goes up. Because what you're thinking in your head is, what's their angle here? What are they doing? What are they after? What do they want? That's not what happens in the small towns, in the south, and in Appalachia. What happens is... Of course they're saying hi, because I probably know their cousin, or their uncle, or their dad. It's very tight-knit. Totally different context. Well, I finally figured this out. I finally started to get a taste, you know what I mean? Like, not just philosophically, or, you know, just not like on the surface understand why my wife says, well, that's weird, and why other people wouldn't wave at me, and why they'd look at me like, what's this weirdo waving at me for? I began to understand it intuitively. Like, okay, okay, I'm beginning to understand why, uh, how these people are receiving this when I wave at them, or when I say howdy on the street. I'm beginning to understand from their perspective how they're receiving it, what it feels like for them to, for me to do that to them took me like a decade no joke took me like a decade then I started going through my divorce and during my divorce I decided to buy a new vehicle and do you know what I bought I bought a Jeep Wrangler so imagine now it's taken me an entire decade to work it out of my system that I have to wave at everybody 
every time I pass them driving the opposite direction on the streets and I go out and I buy a Jeep Wrangler and do you know what happened? <laughs> I'm not kidding. <clears throat> the day I start driving that around, everybody start waving at me. I'm not making that up. The day I got it out of my system that I had to wave at everybody on the street, everybody passing me in their vehicles. The day I got that out of my system, I bought a Jeep and I started driving that around and everybody in a Jeep that I passed started waving at me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and do you know why? It's like an unspoken code. People who drive Jeep Wranglers, when they pass another Jeep Wrangler, they wave at each other. They do it in the cities. They do it everywhere. Everybody in a Jeep Wrangler, when they're passing another Jeep Wrangler, waves at the other Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> Can you believe that? It took me 10 years to get away from waving at every single person I pass, and now I'm driving this Jeep Wrangler, and every single Jeep Wrangler I'm passing, they're waving at me. I didn't understand what was going on at first, but then after, it happened so much. I mean, literally, every Jeep Wrangler that I would pass, they would wave at me. I started to say, wait a second, there's got to be something to this. And I did an internet search, and I found out that that's what they do. And then I remembered my brother telling me, he drove a Harley for a while, a motorcycle. And he told me that uh, people who own Harleys do that. So if you'll ever notice, if you see two people driving a Harley motorcycle and they pass each other, you'll see them wave at each other. And it's just uh, an aspect of owning a Harley motorcycle. Same thing with Jeep Wranglers. You own a Jeep Wrangler, when you pass somebody, you acknowledge, hey, buddy, living the Jeep life, I guess is what, what you're saying. Um, the only thing is, is that in the small towns, nobody in Jeep Wranglers waves at each other. It's the exact, it's the exact reverse. Is that not crazy? So if you're me moving to the city, you wave at everybody because it's rude not to and you make everybody uncomfortable but if you own a Jeep Wrangler in a small town nobody waves at each other the only people who do that in Jeep Wranglers are people in the city it's so convoluted it's so convoluted so that's the true story my Jeep Wrangler by the way is called the Bacon I named it that the day I brought it home, and that's what I call it to this day. So if you ever hear me talking about the bacon, I'm talking about my Jeep Wrangler. Uh, got it in 2011. I'm still driving it, and uh, it only has 120,000 miles on it. I put 80,000 miles on it in the first five years when I was living in Philly and New England. Think about that. 80,000 miles in the first five years. Guess how many miles I've put on it in the second five years since I moved back to Appalachia? 40,000. So, the bacon. And everybody says, well, why did you call it the bacon? Because when I got it, the idea was that it was going to help me bring home the bacon. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for today. I hope you've had a wonderful experience here and 
looking forward to uh, the weekend I hope you are too I hope you're going to do something nice for yourselves if you'd like to see this video again you can see it on uh, Rumble on the Last Symptom channel or on YouTube on the Last Symptom channel by Brian Barnett um, the the uploads what, one thing I wanted to tell you I, I remember I announced this last week that the, this was also available as a video the audio is always going to be available before the, the video the video can take me a day longer to edit and upload so I just wanted to make you aware that you know if if you're hearing this and you rush over to YouTube or Rumble to see the video instead if I haven't had time to upload it uh, that that might be why you can't find it but otherwise it should appear within a day a day after the the audio publishes all right ladies and gentlemen love you and all please take care of yourselves do something nice for yourselves i'll talk to you real soon okay next week mm -hmm.